Look at that. And we've got Tom Bozier, who's in a Nada, a Nada, Nada Surf, Nada Surf. I don't even know how to say that band's name, but look at that. Look at I, all those guitars back there. Oh, yeah. That's the uh, dude. I, I actually produced them. I didn't, I'm not in the band. But no, no, I know, I know, I know. You produced them. I know, I know, but <laughs> no, sorry. You're a guitar wrangler, I think it says in one of the credits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, yeah, the guy, that's what people come to me for, I think. Look at that book. Whoops. There we go. Look at that book. Eh, if I can get it too. Cool. What's up? Nice guys, by the way, I'm Jeremy. Nice to meet you guys. Jeremy, by the way, is uh, he is Montreal's number one on air personality. There you go. That's the book. There you go. <laughs> also, notice the umlaut. Oh, the umlauts. Of course. Of course, we got some umlauts. But, uh, you know, what? let me just uh, let me just start with this with with since we're talking about the 80s, today is one of those days that it marks history. Uh, Alan, you were involved February 2nd, 1988. Guns N' Roses, Great White, Play the Ritz, which is one of these launch pad moments. Um, care to comment quickly, all, all three of you, in terms of how important that was to, to the scene? That, that I was there. Oh, uh well, I guess Alan was too high. Right. <laughs> Jeremy wasn't even born. I was yes, not born. You were not born. But how was that, Tom? It was, I, I remember I won the tickets on either SOU or WNYU. I forget at, at which station. Um, Can you remember how much? How, how much they, what, well, they were free if you want them. They were free, I won <laughs> What them. are they paid if you won? Um, <laughs> I, I, I $13.50. That sounds right. <laughs> Let me see here. Hold on. I've got, I've got a picture of the ticket in my phone here because I had That's to post it. Uh, $13.50. Um, mm -hmm. It was, I, I, I've said this to people and I, I, it is not bullshit. Um, one of probably five concerts that I've seen where I, I had already bought the Guns N' Roses record. I was, you know, familiar with them and that's mm -hmm. why I wanted to go. But we're watching it. You're, you're like aware that something is going down. You know, I'm actually right now getting a little bit. Verklempt. Like, yeah, for, because as like a, as a, <laughs> as a 16 year old, like watching that show, I just, I, I, I remember standing there at the Ritz, which is where you went to see all the, Cool know, I, 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 yeah but like so a million shows that i don't remember and i just remember sitting there like oh shit this this band is just amazing yeah. like, it, it was truly a um like formative experience and one that i remember to this day is just being like top five best shows all time but what was you, so good about it though that's what i want to know because like, you know when you see greatness you know you go to a bunch of shows and you just see a bunch of bands and then every so often you hit one and you just go those guys are going to be something but dude come on there were so many bands no, at that I time think, what was I so think, special I think about them Alan, do you want me to explain it to you yes. <laughs> yeah sure please spontaneity and confidence and attitude on 11. Mm. Yeah. So it was a combination of the songs, the attitudes, the personalities on the stage, the musicianship. It, it was just the, the vibe in the room. Yeah. Great, great white word. Um, MTV came to me and asked to uh, film Great White at the Ritz. And of course, being 
kind of person I am, I said, sure. But my other band opens. And we, I, th I think that was something like, uh, oh, November or something. We were figuring, we were putting that on, on the calendar. And of course, by the time the evening came around, it seemed to be a sensible thing to let GNR close. Because there's always one, uh, because the vibe then was really beginning to grow. And the White Ones played a blistering set to start with. Slash came running into the dressing room and said, motherfuckers, how am I supposed to copy, follow that? <laughs> and of course they did. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember just watching it. You know, I saw it on MTV, like most kids did at that time. And, you know, it was, it was enough that like, we taped it on a VHS tape and you watched it over and over and over. And then you knew those versions as well as you knew the, the ones on the record. Like I knew every nuance of my Michelle, the way they played it that night. You knew every censorship bleep too. You'd go, yeah. Oh. But bleep. yeah, totally. But like you just, even through the TV, it was like, this was different than and, and anything well, else. Hold, hold on a second, guys. We're, we're disappearing down a rabbit hole here. Which is fine. With with nothing but a well, good time going on here. Steering down a rabbit hole, and there is a segue. Yeah. And what we're here to talk about is this, which, when it was left on my front doorstep, put my back up and I'm trying to pick it up. You see how thick it is. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's like a phone book. So wait until you get the hard cover. It's a uh, 536 pages. Well, you know, this is this is a good segue because, you know, Mitch and I, I wasn't even supposed to be on this interview. We were talking about it. I'm like, dude, you know, I'd like to talk to these guys because you're writing a book about a decade that I went to high I was born in 1994, way after this whole scene was come and gone, right? So I'm in high school. Everybody's into, you know, modern electronic dance music stuff. And here I am blasting Poison and Guns N' Roses and all the oh, Hold on, hold on. When, when was high school for you then? It was 2004? Dude, I graduated in 2011. And for somebody that's my age, just so completely mesmerized by that whole scene, it's like, you know, I'm the perfect demographic for this book to learn about the whole scene and what was going on so you know it's it's interesting to talk to the four of you guys and for you guys to just tell me about what was so special about that time well let me jeremy, go jeremy let, let me give let me give you one quick comment because there was a segue i was coming to there in the best rock and roll shows we're looking for cohesive spontaneity a tremendous presence a power being emanated from the stage uh, when you're recording, you're looking to catch a moment. And I have to say that once I spent uh, a, a day with this book, I went, you know, they caught the moment. Mm. Um, I would say that anybody who's into 80s rock and roll well, has to have a copy of this book. Thank you very much. That is a... <laughs> you I'm caught a moment, guys. Uh, thank you. I mean, you. Not, not everything is... Uh, absolutely accurate and truthful in it i mean people have had 30 years <laughs> well listen tracy guns uh, tracy guns was quoted so um yeah, they've had 30 years to polish polish their uh, sense of their own mythology but i will tell you this that as somebody who was there at the time i read this and the first reaction i had which was the best reaction was i was laughing time and again it's highly entertaining and it's revealing 
I'm, I'm curious to know from Tom and, and Richard, what was the most extraordinary thing that was revealed to them during the process? Mm -hmm. Do you want to take it first? I mean, there, there were a number, there was one larger theme mm -hmm. that to me was the most revealing thing that like growing up as a, as a fan of this music and, and you really do as a, you know, I was right in the sweet spot. I was 15 and 86 or whatever, 15 and yeah, 86. Um, you don't really understand the amount of work <laughs> people put in. And I, the, to me, the biggest revelation, I mean, there were some other much more lascivious revelations, but the biggest theme that you, I walked away from this book was just like all the dudes in these bands, I mean, as much as they could have, they were some of them tremendous fuck ups were so absolutely dedicated in this era. This was not like a era where being in a band was like an activity you did after school. Like the, the level of commitment and the level of work that everyone in this band put in this book puts in to reach the success that they attain is just like mind boggling. And to me, that was a real, mm -hmm. a, it was a real, you know, revelation that to a, to a, to a person, all of these people were just so incredibly. Tom, you're dead on. And, and one of the things that made me smile too was the, the remembrance that in certain cases, maybe ambition and determination exceeded talent. But the one thing about all those rock and roll shows that you put on, and they're a lot of work, is it's supposed to look entirely spontaneous and effortless. Yeah. But there's a lot of energy and a lot of intelligence behind making it happen. Yeah. And I would say another thing, and Tom and I have talked about this, um, and I've probably mentioned this to you, Alan, is the fact that how, how DIY the scene was in the early days, especially. Um, if you look in LA and you have Motley and Rad and Great White and Dokken and all these guys, Poison even, like these are guys who they're on independent labels. They're kind of scraping it together on their own. They're certainly scraping the stage show together on their own. On the East Coast, Twisted Sister and all those bands are doing the same thing. Um, you know, Wasp is in a garage making their big fire sign and, you know, and, and actually tooling the, their, their, you know, codpiece belt and all that stuff like out of gardening implements yeah out of gardening implements and you know people i think look at this music the they view it through the lens of the late 80s and you know and as a very corporate mtv you know sort of scrub clean type of thing which some of it was at that point some of it at that point even wasn't but certainly in the early days like these guys you don't have to like this music but you have to respect the fact that they were doing it, they had nothing to go on, but their wits, they certainly didn't have record labels that were interested in this shit in 81, 82, 83, Alan, you know that. Um, I mean, you were interested in it, <laughs> you, but the majors weren't. Um, you know, it's as DIY as punk in the 70s, as Indian college rock in the 80s, like, and maybe more so in a lot of ways. Well, and I think I, it's also the, because, you know, they were starting and creating something from the ground up. Like they were just basically creating something that didn't exist before that, you know? Yeah. 
And, and also, Jeremy, you know, it's weird, which we, I think we both learned and which gets repeated over and over. And Alan can probably speak to this as well. In like 1980, 1981, 1982, they were creating a new thing, but actually they were viewed like the bands. If you were a band with long hair playing hard rock music in 1980 or 1981, you were considered, and Rudy Sarzo says this in the book, we were considered to be dinosaurs. People were into... <laughs> Elvis Costello, they were into the Knack, they the were into Go-Go's. If you look at the bands that were playing the whiskey then, you'll see like Go-Go's, Knack, uh, Plimsolls, yep. Blank, and then like one day out of the month, it's like Quiet Riot. And then, <laughs> you know, these bands, the, the, rec the, the mainstream record labels were just like, this is some old 70s. New wave, man. Yeah. Everybody wanted new wave. It, they these bands had to completely, you know, create it from the ground up, and it, 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 you didn't realize that at the time that these, you know, when you when you're a kid and you're seeing Twisted Sister or Quiet Riot on MTV, or you're not realizing like that these are dudes who have like just scratched their way mm. to like getting a record label that nobody and nobody wanted to give them the deal and everybody thought they sucked and they somehow yeah 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 let me ask you all of this do you think that's why these bands have survived and a lot of them are still touring in 2021 i mean <laughs> touring <laughs> whatever it is now. but do you think that's why they survived because they had this no quit because you're right i was there and it was all about the knack and it was all about you know Huey lewis and brian adams and flock of seagulls and stray cats and these guys came in and they went, oh, they're dinosaurs. And then in the 90s, they were like, oh, throw them out. And then in the 2000s, oh, throw them out. And yet they still survive. You know, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Twist. Is it, it's yeah. just part of them, I guess, right? And they have that, that scrappy, that scrappiness, you know, that was maybe masked during the big glitzy late 80s, but it's still embedded in them. And, and yeah, I mean, Alan, I think is the one in the book you, you, talk about like a flock of Durans and you, you know, you sort of mash up all these bands and that's all the labels were interested in. But, you know, I, a lot of these bands, like they've been there before, you know, the way it was in the early nineties, like they saw that in the early eighties and, and so on. And so, you know, yeah, they tried to reinvent themselves, a lot of them and, and fit in with the times. It usually didn't work on one or two occasions it did, but. Yeah. Yeah. I also have like to survival. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think it's a Rudy Sarzo quote out of the book. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but uh, there's an awful lot in there to, to recall. Um, but I think Rudy said, it's what you do. So that's a part of it. And the other thing is that I remember in 1977, I was visiting a distributor in Minneapolis. And they invited me to go to a gig with them that night. And the gig was with a band called The Grateful Dead. And I was moderately surprised that there was a big arena show for The Grateful Dead. This is 1977. And then I turned up to the gig and was flabbergasted to see the age of the audience. They were much younger than I were. So there's a general, generational aspect. And if your material and if your recordings are good enough, they speak to subsequent generations. That's a test of all art. That's a test of all, all yeah. time is a test of all art. I have, a, I have a question for Tom real quick, because, you know, you, you write this book 
And it's, it's a celebration of the 80s. And yet when you're editor-in-chief at Revolver, Revolver didn't cover Poison. I mean, it, they, they didn't, you didn't have a lot of that. Right. Um, talk to me about, you know, promoting music and, and, and being involved in a scene where, where you sort of say, listen, I love you guys, but I'm, I can't have you in this magazine. And, and Well, even more extreme than that. I mean, yeah. I started, my magazine career started uh, right out of college in 19, I started at Guitar World magazine as an intern and then as an assistant editor in like 1994 um year i was born there you go and that year don't don't feel old tom don't feel old. the the by then like 1994 it was as if um I mean, poison was poison shit, in 1994. But the, shit, but the shit, it was as if the shit never happened. Like I'm working at a guitar magazine that had all these guys on the cover and stuff. And it had completely already transitioned um, hmm. into grunge. Like we were covering Soundgarden. We're covering even presidents of the United States were on the cover, like uh, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Pearl Jam, you know, like maybe when Cinderella put out Still Climbing, maybe there was half a page. You know what I mean? The music was so toxic at that point that like, you know, there's there's a point in the in the book where Tom Kiefer says that on their, I think it's on the Still Climbing tour, they're going to play in Seattle and the radio station won't even sell them advertising time to advertise their show because they don't want to be tainted by Cinderella. And then, but to move to Revolver then in the 2000s, we covered it once. You covered it once, accidentally. We covered it once. No, we- Who let that in there? In the, in the- um, What the fuck? Yeah, in the context of like other bands loving that stuff. So like when Dan Jacobs of Atreyu like would want to do, and then we had a thing called- um, rebel meets rebel where we would have like old like guys talk to their idols it just wasn't um it, it is a weird thing it wasn't like what um i don't think our readers wanted to, to to read about they wanted to read about especially in 2000 i mean it was a different very like i started that magazine i mean it was all it was drowning pool it was yeah yeah all yeah, those like all those bands I could yeah. barely sell a two hundred seat, three hundred dollars, yeah. three hundred seat yeah. club now. You know, <laughs> we weren't we weren't even really covering. You know, bodies did like, hit the floor. Yeah. Slayer <laughs> was even having a tough time in two thousand. You know, like <laughs> Slayer, Pantera were doing a tour that wasn't really selling. You know what I mean? Like it was, they were still Slayer, but it wasn't like. Yeah, but was what was it? Time. What. What happened to the music scene, though, where it's like, okay, everybody talks about how Nirvana killed, you know, all, all those bands and stuff. But why did those bands all of a sudden become like persona non grata and like, like Mitch said, you know, poison? Like, why did everybody just stop caring about them and sort of pretend like it never happened? Like, why did that happen? I want to hear what Alan has to say first. <laughs> it's because Alan retired and there was nobody there to, to, to yeah. but like, you know, carry the flag. 
Well, Mitch, we were just saying how, you know, you look at Def Leppard and Journey and Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and all those bands, they can still sell stadiums. Whereas all those 90s bands where everybody in the magazines and the record labels were like, oh, we got this hot new band. They're going to be the hottest, biggest thing. Jet. Jet's going to be the next new band. Or like Lit or like all those bands. And it's like, you know, they can't (laughs) even sell out a bowling alley now. Whereas those bands with those iconic songs from the 80s can still go out and do a stadium and play, you know, the big arena. But there was 10 years where they couldn't do anything. Yeah. yeah. But what do you, th- why do you think it came back? You know, I don't think, well, why it came back, I think, you know, it's just nostalgia, but there's why it, why it died in the first place. I don't think there's any easy answer. Like I think, you know, the Nirvana. Thing, oh yes, there is too many power ballads. They just got born. Every time you turn on the radio, here's a new fucking ballad. It's like, shut the fuck yeah, up and they, rock. But they were working, you know, like, I don't think, you know, yeah, there's Nirvana and that's, that's part of it. There's what a lot of these guys say in the book. I think Fred Curry says it, a few other people that a lot of the, the bands were putting out kind of shit records in 90, 91, you know, like it wasn't their best work. People were tired of it. A, a few people in the book say that they kind of killed their own scene just with subpar material, but you combine that with the Nirvana stuff and the grunge stuff and like, you know, and just sort of the changing of a new generation of kids coming up. I mean, I was a teenager at that time. I loved all this stuff, but I sort of transitioned out of it. I didn't turn my back on it. Like I still listened to all this stuff, but I certainly didn't think that Poison and Warrant looked as cool as the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Soundgarden and Nirvana. Like they just didn't to a kid that at that time, you know, and then so you move on. I think think it was also the attitude of the bands at the time, because you kind of went from you know, Brett Michaels dressing like Brett Michaels and then, you know, Soundgarden and all those guys coming in with this toxic masculinity of like, oh, I'm not some fucking pussy dressing up in makeup and wearing spandex. Like everybody was just like roadies and like the average Joe working the garage. Like there was nothing about being a rock star anymore. It was like anti rock star. You got you guys have already answered your own question. Right. And one of the consistent things that comes out in the book. And Richard put it in in terms of DIY, is obviously you guys can get the perception that most of the cognoscenti working for the major labels didn't like the music, didn't think it was cool, didn't connect with it. The whole reason why um, Unplugged started was a bunch of guys sitting in Manhattan who went to Manhattan clubs, working at MTV, were, were pissing and moaning about the bands that they were having to play on air and their idea was let's do an acoustic set with them and show people that they really can't play well that worked out well didn't it (laughs) there's a there's also a a thing in the book which i think um is interesting which is when the grunge stuff comes out and actually steve brown of of trickster Trickster. Trickster. and def leppard (laughs) Yeah, and Def Leppard, <laughs> and Sticks, and the Eric crap. Martin band. Yeah. Yes, um, he's you know he points out, and a lot of the bands point out, like the guys in Skid Row, um, they they love Nirvana. You know, Nirvana turned down tours with Skid Row. They turned down tours with uh, Guns N' Roses. Um, Pantera opened for Skid Row. There was a, con- a Concrete Foundation. I saw that tour. LA. Oh, wait, hold on a second, Alan. Didn't Nirvana? open up for Guns N' Roses because I heard a story they played at the Verdun Auditorium in Montreal and they opened up for Guns N' Roses and Nirvana got booed off the stage at that show. Do you remember anything about that? 
Not during my uh, my time in the sea. Hmm. Um, Mitch, do you remember that? No, and I went to all the shows. I don't, I don't think they ever played together. I think no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kurt Cobain hate like thought that. Well, two things. So for, the bands did for for a while. I don't think that like I saw at the Cat Club in New York City a show where Alice in Chains opened for Extreme. So there was a period where you didn't have to pick a side. There was a there was a, like a weird period where you had, you know, the quote unquote hair metal. Oh, the November nineteen ninety six. Yeah, that was the day. <laughs> One day, um, that day. Um, but uh, but where the bands were coexisting, and I don't think the eighties bands thought that these Seattle bands were going to completely replace them. They were like, oh, there are these cool bands from Seattle that wear torn jeans, and like, well they have really good songs. They should come on tour with us. And to your point about Nirvana and, um, and I'll shut up, Rich, I promise. And, and Guns N' Roses, the real truth of the matter is I think while Nirvana did not kill hair metal, Kurt Cobain despised hair metal. He despised the gender politics. He despised the, like you were saying the masculine, but the, the you know, he, he hated that um, it actually had a really big feud with uh, uh, Axl Rose, you know, they, they like, and Kurt Cobain was like against hair metal. And I feel like as the patron saint of this music, I think he influenced a lot of people to be like, okay, either or, you know, I'm throwing this shit out. And that's what Steve Brown of Trickster says is like, you know, these dudes and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, like we're drinking beers with them one day and on tour and backstage. And then the next day they're telling, they're, they're telling people in the media that we suck. And I think that there was a certain point of coexistence and then a point where the new generation of bands somehow like got this sense that like, we can't, we have to be other. You have to pick a side. Tom? You have to pick a side. Tom? Yes. You've got to explain something to me. How does somebody with Cobain sensibilities end up with a Courtney Love? I don't end up with Yoko. <laughs> I, I don't, you know. By the way, you, you, you are very bright, a very bright person. I'm going to tell you a story about uh, Cobain that's, that's not in your book, but I actually babysat Frances Bean Cobain when she was five years old once. I was over at Phil Lewis's house in L.A., and he was, he was doing music for Fox Sports, and they, he got a call and said, I got to go. He said, do you mind? Because he had uh, Madison and Paris, I guess it was his kids. He says, can you just stay here and babysit them for the night? And he gave me a phone number. And he said, if there's any problems, phone this number. And it was Drew Barrymore. He goes, he goes, you, if there's any problems, you just phone Drew Barrymore. You just phone Drew and she'll come over and take care of it. And I'm just like, I think I'm just going to create a problem. This, this sounds like a good, <laughs> I might just have to create a problem to, but yeah. yeah. So, so when she was five years, so we're like, whatever, 1996 or 97, I babysat Francis Bean for one evening. So there you go. That's my, that's my, that's my six degrees of separation from Courtney and look at you, Mitch, always making it about you. I know. Love it. I have to be the news. (laughs) Uh, Richard, 
you, you haven't spoken much, but you've had a chance over the years to interview the Van Halen guys. Um, talk to me about their importance. And, and they're included a lot in the book. Uh, obviously not a hair metal band, but, but talk to me about, about them and, and how important they were to sort of setting that seed and getting the Starwood going and getting the Gazaris and being part of just getting that hard rock scene moving in L.A. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I mean, obviously they're in, extremely important. They're not a big part of this book because they're, they're almost like this sort of thing that's like floating over the book because they, everybody, especially the bands that are there in 80, 81, 82, you know, unprompted from Tom or I, they're mentioning Van Halen about everything. And, and surprisingly to me, actually, I think because Tom and I both come from this guitar world background it's always been about Eddie but in the book most of these guys were talking about Dave um because I think just the visual of Dave at that time made such an impact on these bands um mm. but you know Van Halen no they're not they're not a hair band I think and even Michael Anthony in the book talks about you know he's like we we didn't we're not these bands like we never wore makeup we, we weren't doing this stuff um they came from a different background but I think that you don't have this scene. I mean, you have this scene without Van Halen, but it's a very different scene. I think one of the things that we found interesting, Tom and I have talked about this, is the fact that um, Van Halen gets signed and that doesn't necessarily lead to this, this scene exploding. It's actually quite the opposite. And I think um, Wild Mick Brown says it in the book because the boys were obviously playing with Van Halen at the Starwood and all that and supposedly Gene came, Gene Simmons came to see the boys, not Van Halen. He takes Van Halen back with him. Um, Van Halen gets signed and the door just kind of shuts. And then that's when all the punk and new wave starts. And Wild McBrown is like, why, if Van Halen could get signed and sell millions of records, why wouldn't they sign the boys? And why wouldn't they sign Quiet Riot and all these bands? But the fact of the matter is like Van Halen was a different thing. Um, and it wasn't, they weren't just being swept up in this wave. Like they were being swept up because they were the shit. Um, so, so yeah, they sort of influenced what was to come, but they were, they were really separate from it. And there, and there is this distinct break between when they're there and then there's nothing. And then there's Motley and all that stuff comes in. Right. Where in, in the late eighties, when Sam's in the band at the height of like, OU eight, one, two and guns and roses is one of the biggest bands in the world. Where did Van Halen sort of sit in on the totem pole of rock bands at the time? You know, I don't even then, I don't know that they were, they were obviously touring with these bands and all that stuff, but you know, as somebody speaking from the fan perspective, which I was at the time, I didn't think of them. I thought of old Van Halen as a, Part of that scene but i didn't think of you know the sammy hagar era as like the same thing as my my motley cruise and my guns and roses and like all that stuff it was it felt a little more like adult right know? yeah a little nicer but, but even to, when you but, got but to be fair 90s, well, i was just gonna say just to, real quick and then i'll get to the 90s but to be fair alice cooper kiss uh, uh van halen they sort of started chasing the trend i mean they they sort of became hair bands de facto right not so much van halen though like no, they, not van halen you know eddie i can't stop loving you and I, come on that, that's that's yeah but eddie has his parachute pants on and he's just doing his thing you know like they're not by like, the way can't, can't stop loving you is like 95 that's balanced by the way mid I, I feel like i feel like van halen became what 
one could and i love eddie like i he's the greatest ever but the it's like that iteration of van halen became what i think one can refer to as like corporate rock yeah you know what I mean? like like they were just a hit yeah Machine. walks in yeah uh, listen to when it's love and you know those it was like those- genesis they were like genesis or i don't know what other band you, you want to put in that well you're true actually uh, invisible touch for genesis was very very corporate rock yeah alan was guns and roses corporate rock <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna reach through this and slap you but go ahead <laughs> of, of course they were they were signed to a major corporation called uh, of which geffen was a part Anybody who's signed to a major corporation is by de facto definition, corporate rock. But, you know, the other thing is we're inclined to talk in uh, terms of genres and cliches and hairband and so on and so forth. You've got to keep in mind that, you know, with the development of, the, of, of that rock and roll wave was the MTV factor. And the MTV factor took it from being an pretty much exclusively aural experience where the music went into your ear and your imagination got to work to literalizing and massively um, demanding that you have some sort of visual presence. I mean, you know, did 38 Special have a visual presence? No, Um, they were just a radio fixture. So, you know, there there were bands that were doing really well, radio bands, doing fine. And then we had to deal with MT fucking V, which was a pain in the ass. But would labels kind of like cave to the pressure of MTV and say like, in their boardroom and say, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Cave to the pressure. They had a new outlet to market their, their product to kids in their homes on TV. They weren't caving to pressure. They were sending over big old baggies of blow and taking them out to dinner. Get my band on your TV show. I mean, right. Alan, do you think, because we talked about, we talk about this in the book too, but like without, do you agree that Quiet Riot, um, Come On, Feel the Noise, that that video getting on MTV is really the the singular singular spark that like started tom that was the can of kerosene that was the can of kerosene that was going out the country club to maybe go and see leader ford play or something the big screens there you know between the bands and the videos on the big screen and everybody's going oh my god here we go and that yeah. was i mean it didn't it doesn't happen without that and 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 the yeah. sister video, right? Like, I don't think yeah. that, yeah. No, radio was a very progressive thing. Um, back in the day, there was a, a loose sense of formula that if you managed to get signed, that if you managed to get somebody to take an interest in your band, and most A&R people weren't particularly hip to rock and roll bands, if you got signed, your first record had to get to about 100,000 units. Then you might get a shot at a second one. If your second one doubled that or got to 300,000, you'd get a shot at a third. And it was progressive because it took time to get, get these bands and their tracks placed on radio and get them into rotation and so on and so forth. And of course, along comes MTV and suddenly Poison are an overnight success. Right. Hmm. 
Well, that's because they're fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Don't need nothing. I, a good time. I, I, there's an irony in that title in the book because a lot of people <laughs> definitely had very hard times getting there and hard times after they got there. Yeah, well, that's actually, that's, that's very perceptive to say because that was a conversation that we had, Tom and I, and then also with our publisher that like, I mean, look, it's a great title and it's sort of instantly recognizable and it does sum up this era in a lot of ways, but this book isn't all about a good time. Like there's actually a lot of struggle and there's, you know, there's, that's not what, that's not what it is, but, um, but yeah, yeah. But Jeremy, also to answer your question about MTV, it's one of the things that made it impossible for these bands to retool in the 90s is that they had been, you know, you could not, you you do not, you you were not alive during this era, but MTV. Isn't that weird to say? Yeah, but like MTV was like, bang, 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 Whitesnake video, boom, you know, this video, that video. You, those guys, you know, the guys in Nelson like couldn't go to a mall without starting a riot, literally. Like if they went together to a mall, these, these musicians were made celebrities by MTV. So like- Overnight, overnight. overnight. Why, why did Guns N' Roses explode, Tom? Because the Welcome to the Jungle video is awesome. Yeah. Yes. And it. Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Now, it, by the it, way, speaking of malls, the Trickster guys were all at the Paramus Mall, so so there there were people at malls. <laughs> See, they they get the joke; they know that joke. Um, but yeah, go ahead, finish what you were saying on on that. Mm-hmm. Just that there was no that these that the guys in these bands, and it, it for which some of them were not mentally prepared. You know, I think mm-hmm. went from being musicians to being you know, as famous as people are today. Like, and you have to remember, there wasn't like a million things happening. There was MTV happening. So if you had a video in rotation on MTV, you were, you could not go any, it's not, things weren't like all divided up. Like you were famous everywhere in America to every kid that had seen your face. And, you know, once that happens too, you can't suddenly like change your look or change or be like, oh, I didn't do that video or... So I think it, but it was such a symbiotic relationship between these bands yeah. and MTV, you know. You know, I'm just going to say, I never thought of that, but you're right. They they had this tool that made them big in the 80s and in the 90s, they didn't have the tool. So, and they didn't have any kind of plan B or creativity or like what, it was like, you, you make an album, you make a video and every, and then it was like, well, you make an album and we don't have a video, so what, what what the fuck do we do? Yeah, and it was beyond not having a tool. It was like this this tool that you had is uh, is actively going to destroy you. Um, and I think it's in in the book. It might be Joey Allen yep. from Walmart that says it. Tom, maybe you would remember where he runs into someone from MTV. I think Rick Krim. Yeah, at some party or whatever, and he pulls out his credit card, and he's like, "Please, I will do whatever." I can please play my band's video. Um, but you know, it was just, there was nothing that could be done. Like they were, it was just over. Here's, here's, another, here's another point to that. Yeah. 
The people who ran MTV were people who lived in Manhattan. They lived a Manhattan style of life. Manhattan is yet to read from, as far as I'm concerned, produce a bona fide authentic rock and roll band. Most of the bands in the book played to Peoria. They played to the Midwest, they played to Texas, they played to Colorado, they played to Arizona. Um, you know, put a great white record out. Farmington, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the desert would be on it in a heartbeat. There was a connection between these bands that was far more blue collar, ordinary America than Manhattan. And the people who ran MTV were in Manhattan. I mean, it's why they put on Beavis and Butthead to take the piss out of the bands. Well, I would even venture to say that these bands still don't play Manhattan. They yeah. still they play Jones Beach on Long Island and they play New Jersey and they play Albany. Like they, they still don't play Manhattan. It's 30, 40 years later. You're right. I'll, I'll ask you, I'll ask Alan and, 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 and Tom, of course you were with Revolver, but you know, these bands were good to you, the media back then. And then all of a sudden, 1991 or 1992 hits, and then all of a sudden, the only person they're talking to is Jerry Miller. Why do you think the press completely shut them out right away? I mean, yes, the, you know, other stuff is hip and happening, but isn't there a little bit of loyalty that's saying, hey, you know what, Brett Michaels sold us a few copies, let's, let's throw him a bone? Like, why did they just say, eh, forget it, probably, we're done? Probably boredom, probably having an attitude of definitely not cool anymore. Um, but what about loyalty and say, hey, these guys were good for us for 10 years. Let's... Darling, let's... if you want a friend in Hollywood, go buy a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I think that some of the magazines did, uh, I forget who it is, the guy from Hit Parader uh, says like that he held on. Sesher? Uh, Andy Sesher? I think it might be, is it Sesher who says like, I held on putting Warren on the cover and I probably made a mistake. because It is him, yeah. 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 Because he went, um, well, you also have to sort of to Alan's point about, you know, Manhattan or whatever. These bands were never actually covered in the mainstream media. I mean, you can count, there was two Bon Jovi Rolling Stone covers where basically the character assassinated him. And like, there was, you know, there was a Sebastian Bach cover. There was maybe there was a Motley Crue cover where they made guns. Band. It was a guns cover, yeah. but like it's probably a dozen covers between True. you know that yeah, you're whole, right that whole. So this was not a music that the um, music press had really the they really only covered it when they were backed against the wall like the Bon Jovi or the Guns record and got. Guns was different because Guns had like the, they understood and Izzy understood like Johnny Thunders and like he, he they were channeling. Something else. Uh, something else. But, you know, rolling my, Rob Tannenbaum, who's a writer who's interviewed in the book, he got sent to do the, the, the Bon Jovi cover story for Rolling Stone. And they basically sent him because he was the new guy and like nobody wanted to do it. So there was a hostility within the press you know, to these bands anyway. So I think they were just, you know, the second that they could just not have to cover it anymore. Yeah. But I think the kids spoke too. I think they probably stopped buying the magazines that had Warren on the cover, you know? Mm. Well, I didn't. <laughs> God bless you. I never bought Rolling Stone. Fuck that. No. Uh, but there you go. Listen, this, this is a, a fantastic book. And I love the fact that it's, 
you, you have all these stories told by these different voices, you know, the, the Billy Rose and the Tracy Guns and the Allen. And, all, and it, they sort of all paint a similar picture, but not the same picture, which is kind of interesting that they all, all these memories are in the ballpark, but not exact. You know, it's, it's great. Yeah, I think that was actually, pardon oh, me. Sorry. I was going to say that that was one surprising thing to me. That I mean, obviously everyone has their own story, and some are really kind of out there. But for the most part, all these guys had a similar viewpoint on what happened and what went on, and like where they kind of stood within the whole scene, and like acknowledging like who was who was here, and maybe who was here, and who was here, um, and being pretty reasonable about it and and yes not everything said I mean people have their own memories but for the most part I feel like people were pretty clear-eyed about what went on and how it happened and you know that was kind of refreshing actually. Can I ask? I, I, think, can I, ask? I think you're being modest about something there too because um, much to my amusement at certain points there's a it's an oral history but what you cannot miss with this book is the skill in both getting the original material, the interviews, and then there's a delightful skill in the editing because there are themes in this book and there are moments when there's editing to make it seem like there's a conversation going on. There's a very skillful thing that's done by these two guys in this yeah. book. Agreed. You keep a theme, you keep themes going. It's not just that everybody said the same thing. Tom and, Tom and Richard recognized certain things and constructed a really good book. Oh, absolutely. And, and what were you going to say? What was your question, Tom? I, this is completely, this is much more granular, but I, I, need, I need, because I still, even though we've spent so much time in the book on it, Alan, what is your, why do Don Dockin and George Lynch hate each other so much? <laughs> Like what? What is your? It is the most enduring, toxic relationship in this book. Mm, you obviously happened. haven't heard of Rat. <laughs> but like, do you? I mean, do you have? Did is there anything that I mean that we don't get to in there? Like, did somebody? Like, what? Have you ever seen those two in a room? Like, what's the deal? I used to live with Don. We lived together for a while. So my simplest response to your question is, have you ever met George? I've yeah. not met George. Yes, actually, yeah. <laughs> George, George is interesting. I've got yeah. to say, every time we do an interview, he's always doing 10 other things. I've had him on a motorcycle. Oh, I've had him oh. checking out of a hotel. I've had him shopping at whatever Home Depot. He's always doing three things at a time it's the most fascinating <laughs> interview subject it's like that would be super annoying it's like dude like you're doing an interview just like do one thing can you talk to me for like 15 minutes like put them like get off the motorcycle like he sounds unpleasant so maybe that's why they don't get along he's an unpleasant dude yeah, who knows and 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 the rat story i love the rat guys but i mean 25 years of lawsuits it's like just go play go go play <laughs> So where can we get this book? Is it available in bookstores or is it like exclusively online? It will be out in bookstores, you know, when you can go to a bookstore. Um, it, it's out March 16th. Um, it is certainly available for pre-order everywhere, Amazon included. Um, but yeah, it'll be in stores March 16th. 
and uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, hopefully it will be widely available. Luck, we were lucky enough to really end up with a good publisher. So I, and it seems like they're really doing it. So it's, 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 it should be annoying. We're hoping it's annoyingly available. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I, I'm going to ask one last question to Tom because I'm just curious, but you, you look at all the music you've worked on with uh, Jennifer O'Connor, Kate uh, Tucker, uh, Nata Surf, and all these people, um, completely <laughs> completely outside of what, what, what this stuff is. Do you, do you bring some of that 80s love or that 80s music into them and, and their production style? And, or, how do you, or do you just compartmentalize? <laughs> Big word for me. Um, uh, how do you deal I with think that? I bring it in in that like the ideas that I have are stealthily all these ideas. So if I'm like, hey, why don't you try, you know, bum bum bum, you know, I might be like telling them to try something from Cry Tough by Poison, and they don't. You know what I mean? Like, there's no one who talks to me for more than five minutes who doesn't know like that half of my brain. Yeah. You know, but I did also grow up like I and people, this is not made up. I had a 90 minute Maxell XL2. Jeremy, you won't know what that is. It's a cassette. Well, you know the cassette, but that was, I do. That was I the, do. That was the good cassette. That the was XL2. the standard. That was the that gold was standard. Those were fucking expensive cassettes. That's what, if you gave a shit, wow. that's what you recorded something on. That's right. When you bought a box of like six of them, they were like 30 bucks or whatever. That was the good shit. Was 30 bucks a lot of money? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of money for me. <laughs> to a 15 year old um, kid it was yeah. um but i had one that i was like kind of on parallel tracks i had one that on one side was poison open up and say ah and the other side was husker do flip your wig so i was into the indie and the the glam metal at the same time so i can code switch pretty effectively but i yeah i'm always sneaking it in there because those are the things that informed me musically but like i won't necessarily you know like somebody we haven't talked to i talked about at all here and who deserves mentioning because i think he was actually one of the great songwriters of the era is janie lane yeah um, whose birthday it was yesterday february 1st and like dude i'm 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 you know there's always i'm always slipping in because he had like key changes and like he was like he was a great song so yeah it's it's in there i mean you got to be a little careful because people can you know yep. you don't want to be like try this thing <laughs> and yeah. here, well, 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 listen, we'll go around the room record. listen mitch uh, yeah. I, honestly at the end of the day cannonball snare sounds great on everything and anything yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, last question uh yeah true or false uh, mutt lang was the greatest producer of the 1980s was and continues to be the greatest songwriter and producer to come out of that decade I don't necessarily. What? I mean, you know, I think it, it depends what you think of as the greatest. Like, I don't, you know, I mean, look, you could look at a guy like Tom Werman, who people have differing opinions on. Love Tom. Um, but he certainly had his fingerprints all over a lot of those records. And he certainly had a lot of guys copying what he was doing, you know. Much yep. um, strength is ear candy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not, your candy sells and it sounds not great. Not, Jeremy, not necessarily <laughs> nutritious and yeah. not necessarily something you want to eat every day, but much strength is ear candy and painstaking construction of it is a 
deep spiritual, emotional, or attitude represented in the, in the things that he recorded? Not very often. I disagree because I really think there's a lot of intention behind the production style that went into Def Leppard's music and the songwriting and oh, the yeah. crafting of that, especially the sonic landscape and how those records sound and were mixed and put even together. Even Foreigner 4 and even, even the ACDC stuff. It, it, yeah. it wasn't just, you know, there, there, there was thought. There I, was... I also like to think that a lot of those 80s bands sort if, of if fell into the... a great producer of that time, go and check out the work of Daniel Lenoir. Okay. The the French guy. Canadian. Canadian. Quebecer. Yeah, Quebecer. Wow. Well, that sounds French. Yeah. But yeah, I was saying, you know, like all those those records. Anyway. Well, let me just last point on that, you know, talking about Mutt. You know, I, I just think as a fan that came in like way after the scene, you 2011. listen. Listen, stop it, you. You you listen to an album like Hysteria, okay? And then you go and listen to an album like I don't know, shout at the devil or like one of those albums. It's a completely different sound. And one of them sounds pleasurable to me. And one of them is really rough around the edges. And okay, yeah, it does suit the music, but it could have been produced and sound a little bit better. And I think in in the nineties, they kind of had that sound as well. Everything went from being super produced and super organic and like rough around the edges, like crappy mixes and two <laughs> microphones on a drum kit in a garage. Like a lot of that music sounds like crap. And I just like per- well-polished, pleasurable sounding albums. Michael Wagner, who produced, um, he produced Warrant. He produced, he mixed Master of Puppets and he mixed the first Poison record. He produced right. Talking, you know, he was all these, he, I was interviewing him and he says, to your point that when hysteria came out that was the record that everyone like that was bands were coming to him and being like this is how i want my drums to sound mm-hmm. so i'm not even gonna lean i think he's a great producer i think he's a like his voice too we have no we have no idea how much of of mutt lang's actual singing we we hear on all these records, which is <laughs> a, a lot, lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Ninety percent of it. <laughs> yeah. But that was that was that was the bench. Like you can fall anywhere you want on it, but it was like so- the sonic yeah. benchmark. Like the band's awesome. like, I want yeah. this. Make yeah. me sound this like sounds this. pleasurable. It sounds it sounds nice. The yeah. greatest news of 2021, and I know we're only February. It was when Brian Adams said. Mutt Lang's producing my next record. And I just went, yeah, yeah that'll make, that'll make up for COVID. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. So on that, I think, I think Alan and I are going to have a big discussion about Mutt Lang and eighties production at some point on my show, because it, it needs to happen. <laughs> we need to do it. There we go. All right, guys. Well, this is awesome. It was great to meet you dudes. And uh, I think we so much for Pleasure to meet you all too. Yeah. Alan, thank you so much for your for your help and participation in the book it, and you know it, in your in your in your interviews and then in, in behind the scenes connecting us with people it was truly we probably couldn't have done it without you seriously so thank you so much well, of course you could have but Richard is someone I've respected for a very very long time so of course I'd help him and yeah. uh, I I hate rock and roll books they all conform to the same arc. There's the vitality and the exuberance of the early days and then the collapse into dissolution at the end of the band. Mm. And all 
rock and roll books have that arc. So I'm very loath to pick one up. I definitely wanted to pick yours and Richard's up because as I say, I've respected Richard for a long, long time. And it was a pleasure that I was laughing straight away. So if you can make me laugh straight away, darling, you got yourselves a great book. Oh, thank you. And it is, it's a fun read. I got to get this. I need it in my hands. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Hey, and I say, Al, Alan, your book was the only one that I was a little bit scared to have sent out because I really did respect what you, what you would have to say about it and what your opinion would be because you know your shit and you were certain and you're in and you the know book. I'm blunt <laughs> and I didn't want you to feel you were misrepresented at all and hopefully you don't but um but it means a lot to hear you say nice things about it so no it's a good one it's worth having absolutely anybody who's into the music of the period go buy it thank oh you oh god th this whole conversation is turning into a power ballad <laughs> <laughs> merci bien thank you so thank much you. everybody all right thank you guys merci, thank you. Merci, beaucoup. Merci. 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 see you later thanks so much